If you're looking for a roadmap to financial health and smart investing, remember, money meets at the intersection of Mulholland and Cooperstock. After your family and your health, your money, your investments should be number three on your life top 10 list. I am Mark Cooperstock, and along with my partner, Stephen Mulholland, a CFA charter holder and CFP, are the principals of Mulholland and Cooperstock Asset Management. Our firm is a registered investment advisor with offices in San Diego and Summerlin, Nevada, with only one goal in mind, to provide meaningful, thoughtful, and tax-efficient advice. We provide investment and generational wealth management guidance while keeping a sharp eye on the economy and the markets. So come along, join us on this journey as we look to help you navigate the superhighway of financial news and global markets amidst the daily traffic of forecasts, speculators, and prognostications. You have arrived. Remember, money meets at the intersection of Mulholland and Cooperstock. Along with engineer Griff back in the booth, back from his traveling around the world and preparing for his first year at Washington University in St. Louis, <laughs> let's welcome my partner, Stephen Mulholland. Stephen, where are we going today? Hey, Mark. Thanks for the warm intro. Griff, great to have you in the booth. It's good to be back. <laughs> Excellent. Today, we are going to talk about Smokey the Bear. Um, you guys both familiar with Smokey the Bear? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Excellent. Every Californian knows Smokey the Bear. You drive by the National Park, the forest, and there's a, a big a sign that hopefully tells you the fire danger is low, but often the last few years tells you it's high, very high or extreme. Um, just like Smokey the Bear provides a really easy way to understand fire risk. Uh, at our firm, Mulholland Cooperstock Asset Management, we have an internal indicator uh, that measures market risk. The two ways we do that is using trend and valuation. Today, we're going to talk about trend following. Griff, I saw you yawning there, so <laughs> we're going to try to spice it up quickly. Um, but the, uh, you know, it's funny. A few years ago, everybody wanted to talk about cryptocurrency, Tesla, how to make a quick buck, and suddenly. Uh, with COVID in the last couple of years, interest rates rising, people are talking about risk again. So that's what we're talking about today, risk management. Um, again, what we're going to talk about today is trend following. Um, trend following momentum is something that shouldn't work, but uh, myriad academic studies have shown that it does. We all know the wisdom of crowds. Uh, many people have called the market the best economic forecaster. Uh, trend following has been an effective tool both to manage risk and make money. Uh, John Henry bought the Red Sox by using trend following. Uh, my brother, uh, who's also a portfolio manager for commodities in New York, he, uh, the way he calls this market, he says, the time to use trend following to make money is gone, but the time to use trend following as a risk management tool is very, uh, very much alive. We think trend following is a good strategy for anyone who's concerned about uh, avoiding a uh, uh, significant downside in the market. Griff, you're young. Uh, th th there was a great article in the New York Times about middle-aged millennials. And they had a wonderful quote with the woman who said, you know, I don't mean to be dramatic, but it feels like three times in my life, I've been saving and just seen my portfolio cut in half. And the funny thing is she's not being dramatic. She's factually correct in 01, 08, and then with COVID, we didn't get quite as steep as the 55% drawdown in 08, but it can be pretty nerve wracking if you're working at Google or you're a doctor or you're a school teacher 
and you watch your portfolio fall in half. Uh, and it, it's especially unnerving for retirees. Uh, anyone has to draw on their portfolio. So I'm gonna rename the next graph, Mark's favorite graph, uh, but for, um, for people on the video feed and we encourage you to check out the YouTube, uh, you can see the graph, but we'll also describe it uh, for, for podcast listeners. Uh, the next graph we show highlights the importance of managing risk, volatility, downside risk for any investor who's making withdrawals from their portfolio. Um, so what we show on this graph is two people. Let's just come up with two random names, Griffey and Mark. Um, Griffey's about college age. Uh, Mark just played in a senior golf tournament in Los Angeles. And uh, both Griffey and Mark start with a million dollars and we're placing them in 1999, if you will. So pre-smartphones. I don't know what the big movie at the time was, maybe Jurassic Park, can't remember. Oh, I had more hair, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Still a very handsome man. So in 1999, <laughs> both Griffey and Mark started with a million dollars. Griffey read Random Walk Down Wall Street. He's taken a great freshman year finance class. Nobody knows nothing. You can't time the market. He says, I'm all in on the S&P, baby. So he puts his million in the S&P. Mark, uh, one of his favorite catchphrases is, I've been around. He knows the market can crash. He's seen some things. So he says, I want to be in the market, but I want to, I, first I want to check the trends and I want to check the valuation. So the graph shows the results of these two strategies using actual S&P 500 data. Um, the red line is Griffey, the S&P. We get, we get to the tech collapse and Griffey, what happens to your portfolio? You started a million, two years later, how much do you have? 500,000. And you've got to withdraw 5% of your portfolio to pay for this wonderful university. So let's call it 50,000. Well, you have, your million went to 500,000. Uh -huh. Insult to injury, you take out 50K. How much do you have now? 450. 450. And Mark, you were nervous because the market was expensive. The internals broke down, right? We're not going to disclose what's behind the blue line because that's internal and proprietary. Um, but uh, let's just say Mark was following trend evaluation uh, the way that we do. And Mark, in 2001-2, how much capital did you have after your 50,000 withdrawal? Oh, right around, looks like around 900,000 thereabouts. And so when the market recovers from 2001, Mark gets back, A, he didn't go that much below sea level and pretty quickly he's making money over the million again. And Griff, you're struggling, man. You're in the doghouse. You got 500,000. <laughs> and you guys are both making a little money. And then 2008 happens, right? And again, you're pulling 50,000 every year because you're going to go four years undergrad. You're a smart kid. You're going to grad school, right? You, you just, you're going to have to keep pulling 50K, right? Um, <laughs> and Mark uses the 50K to, you know, um, pay for his son's uh, chess lessons, golf lessons. He's got two golf clubs he belongs to. So... <laughs> He's got, he also has to keep pulling 50K out. So 2008 happens, Mark stays above the million high water mark. So he's been subsidizing his lifestyle and he actually, that's been coming purely out of return. Griffey, you, in 2008, using actual S&P 500 returns, you'd be around 250,000. That's a stressful time. Now you're using some of your time. Remember, this is the early days. Maybe you have email, maybe you're calling, but hey, mom and dad, you know how you gave me a million bucks? Well, I listened to the wrong professor. I now only have 250. Can you, can you help me out, right? And your parents, don't mm -hmm. worry, you still have 250K. So we keep rolling forward. Well, when you pull 50K out of 250, 
right? You, you're now pulling 20% of the corpus. And we fast forward, um, you get through COVID and you see what happens to your line, Griff. You, you're dead. You get I'm to zero. Dead, yeah. And at that point, you call Uncle Mark. And how much does Uncle Mark have? Uncle, Uncle Mark doing pretty well. Uncle Mark's got about $2.6 million and willing to make a loan at 25% a year. <laughs> so so there's, very, there's some valuable lessons in here. One, be good to your uncles. You know, you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> and, and two, uh, if you're withdrawing from your portfolio, and, and what's amazing, and I should have added this from the beginning, is both strategies are only doing one thing. They're investing in the S&P 500 or waiting to invest in the S&P 500. But they're using the same return stream, right? They're both using actual S&P returns from 1999 to 2021. The only difference is one is following the Smokey the Bear indicator and one is saying nobody knows nothing and they're not. There's nothing else different about the return streams. And so you can, so if I were to show you the returns, the, the geometric annualized returns of these two strategies, they're actually almost the same. But because you're making the constant withdrawals and you're doing it on a reduced portfolio, this is how different the outcomes can be. That's So if I were to put up the returns, you would say, oh, they're both about 10% a year. Who cares? Then we put up the volatility. The S&P is 17, 18%. Marx is um, actually below his return. And so if we just looked at the data points, it might not be so clear, right? But that woman in the New York Times article, the aging millennial, who is kind of bummed out that she's been on the orange line or the red line, depending, it looks orange, I, I don't know, uh, whatever color it is, Griffey strategy. Um, there's a pretty profound difference uh, depending on which of those lines characterized your financial life. Um, as Mark says in the intro, um, your financial life, where did you put it? Number three on the list, Mark, behind? Top 10, your life okay. list, financial number three. Number three. So um, this is a great graph, Mark's favorite for good reason. And uh, Griffey, you're a smart kid. I'm pretty sure right now you have a question. So I'm going to pause and say, um, we just went through that example. Uh, again, be nice to your Uncle Mark, but um, what, what question pops in your mind? Um, well, just, I guess, how would you know when exactly you should be pulling out of the market and you should be staying in? Great question. And remember, and going back to my brother's comment and to your question, I think we want to highlight something, which is we're talking about risk management. We're talking about avoiding the ugliest markets, the chances with the highest risk that your portfolio could get cut in half. We're not necessarily seeking to beat the market here. We're following Warren Buffett's advice that there's two rules of money management. Rule one, don't lose money. Rule two, don't forget rule number one. Incredibly important when you're making withdrawals from your portfolio. So how do we do it? The, uh, we use two strategies. We're going to talk about one today, a different one next time. The first one is trend following. All trend following does is says the market knows something. If it's in an uptrend, we want to participate. If it's in a downtrend, the market is worried about something. We want to participate less and potentially not at all if it degrades enough. So we prepared some data on the S&P 500 um, all the way back to 1928 using the three trend indicators. We're not going to say what they are on this podcast for a variety of reasons, including compliance. Uh, but the... Um, this, the principle is, is we're using the S&P 500 returns. And when the market is in a bit of a downtrend, we reduce our exposure. When the downtrend accelerates, we reduce it more and it breaks down enough, we're all the way out. So we're using a combination of three 
uh, trend indicators for this, and I'm going to pull up the data. And um, for those on video and Griffin, Mark, do you see the Excel workbook? Yes, clear. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so what we see is back to 1928. You see the market return in this column. Um, 1928, as you guys, uh, uh, Mark may remember, Griff, you weren't born yet. Um, in 1928, just kidding, Mark, just kidding. Um, the 1928 was the Great Gatsby, the uh, Jazz Age. This was the Roaring Twenties before the Great Depression. Um, it was a good year for the market, 38%. The moving averages are always a little cautious to participate in the bull market. So it was a little slow to enter. And the three moving averages we used here would have only got you 31%. But Griff, look what happened next year. The S&P went down 12%. The trends had you out of the market and you actually had a positive 2.7% return. As a reminder, this is using public S&P data and either you're long only or using trends to get in to uh, increase or reduce your exposure. So in a nutshell, you see trend following how it works in these two years. A little slow to participate in bull markets and early to um, get out of bear markets. So on balance, in 28, your wife says to you, honey, you're stupid. You missed out on 6%. And the next year, your wife says, honey, you're so smart. The neighbor's selling his house. How did you not lose money, right? You, you have to have a bit of a, um, and this is why we also want to really explain the strategies to our investors or the general public, uh, because you have to buy into the strategy and understand that's how it works. If, if the market is in a rip-roaring bull market and you're a trend follower, you should expect to not be doing as well. And if the market has a lot of volatility and your friends and neighbors are stressed about their 401ks falling in value, you should expect to not be down as much. That's baked into how trend following works. So what we do here, um, so, oh, and as we go down year by year, what's fascinating is 1939 is really the only year out of almost a century where trend following cost you anything, where um, you would have done 14% worse than the market. There's actually a, a really interesting book I'm going to read about the government's attempts to save the economy and the market in 1939. Less to say it was a very strange year. Uh, Great Depression, uh, World War II. Uh, but if you go through the years, Griffey and Mark, what you'll see, 1931, market's down 47%. Trend following, you're down 4%. Um, and you see that trend kind of going throughout history. Um, we also have the five-year averages to kind of, um, so again, we looked at 1928, 1929. The five-year average from 1928 to 1932, the market fell 13% with trend following your positive 2.5%. Um, so taking a step back a little from the painting and looking at five years rather than one year uh, gives you a good idea of how trend following works. And Griffey, as you compare these results, what's one thing that, jumps out to you, like um, the trend following versus the market on five-year averages. Are the numbers similar? Are they wildly different? What, what kind of, what do you notice? They're pretty similar. Yeah, they're pretty similar. It, exactly. So they're really similar with, a, a, and if we go to the full data set, we see the return for the, the S&P was 8.5. The return with trend following was 8.3. Hardly different. But when we contextualize it with the graph we showed earlier, uh -huh. And if we pulled up the annualized returns, what you notice is 
you got insurance without paying anything, right? You, you yeah. match the return of the market, but whereas the S&P has significant years down 40%, trend following caps it in the 10 to 20% range. And all of a sudden, your calendar years are either positive or slightly negative with trend following, where the S&P looks like the cardiogram of a stressed out person on a treadmill, you know, talking to their tax accountant at the same time, right? So smoothing the ride with the same returns is what creates that Mark's, what, I'm, what we're going to rename Mark's favorite graph from before. So I have a question. Um, if you're not planning on withdrawing then from, from your money, is it, is it worth all the stress of doing trend following if it has a very similar return in the end? Fascinating question. I would say it differently. I think um, the person that's long only has more stress. And I can pull up a graph to demonstrate that. The person who's trend following actually doesn't suffer from stress. What the, the one thing they're at risk of is suffering from FOMO. <laughs> because if the market's up 50 and you're up 30 or 35, for some people that would drive them crazy. And if you're at, uh, uh, if you're at high risk of FOMO, right? Um, then, then trend following is probably not for you. Although um, there's a lot of great valuation guys like Warren Buffett in the late 90s refused to invest in the market. I don't understand tech stocks. Trend followers had no problem with it. And then they were out when the market cracked. So in a way, trend following is an antidote for FOMO, but you won't fully participate in the upside. So I would say it, it lowers your risk. It increases the risk of FOMO, but it's less important to protect your downside if you're not going to be making withdrawals from your account. So if you're 25 investing in your 401k and you're not going to touch it till you're 60, well, now you have a really long time to let the market generate historical average rates of return of 10%. Right? Uh -huh. But I met, uh, my dad met retirees in San Diego who spent their time sailing around the world. And my dad said, well, how'd you guys do it? It was the early 2000s. And they said, you know, we retired, we pulled everything out of the market because of dumb luck at the high. And now we still have all our money. Most people didn't do that, uh -huh. right? So there's a pretty large chunk of assets in America held by retirees, foundations, endowments, pension plans that do have recurring cash flow needs. So I don't know, Mark, feel free to chime in. And um, uh, if you have to exit the conversation at some point too, that's okay. Uh, but the uh, uh, the Generally, this is much more important, Griffey, if you are making withdrawals from the portfolio. Okay. Um, yeah, so just one more question that I was kind of thinking of was, I was wondering, you know, since the market is volatile on like an hourly or daily basis, when you're trend following and you're using that as like your strategy, are you expected to be like trading on a daily basis or weekly basis? Like how active are you expected to be? Another great question, Griffey. Um, so, uh, great high school education. Cause you always ask great questions. I look forward to <laughs> progressing university. I'm going to have to keep learning, uh, to keep up with your questions, <laughs> but, uh, great question. And I'm going to pull up a graph for the people that are on with us on YouTube. Um, this is uh, a program we use, uh, to track, uh, can you see a colorful graph now, Griff? Yes, I can. Okay, perfect. Um, this is a program we use to track moving averages, but um, you can use any program. Uh, you can go into Yahoo or Google Finance, dump the S&P into Excel and put the math in for moving averages. And you can play around with this yourself. Um, 
So you don't have to use this program. Um, but what I'm showing here is one line for YouTube followers, uh, viewers, it's the red line here. That is the S&P 500 as represented by a Vanguard S&P 500 index fund, VFINX. The other line that every once in a while goes to green is one that's been programmed so that when it violates our moving average, when the short-term moving average falls below the long-term moving average, it gets out of the market. Um, in this case, just invest in T-bills. Um, the, the, um, and the uh, trend programming I have here is for one of our three trend indicators that we use internally. What you see here is the SY is signals per year, and that's 0 0.9. So tying this question in with your previous one about uh, risk, um, you're not on your computer all day, day trading, multiple trades a day. Uh, there are high frequency traders. That's not what we're that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about risk management. If you were to use trend following to try to accomplish Mark's favorite graph and capture most of the market return while protecting your downside, using these two trend indicators, you would make one trade per year. Yeah, so it's not not too stressful at all, really. Exactly. Even if you spend 11 months traveling around the world you know, <laughs> per year, or heck, even 12, as long as you logged on for 15 minutes in that year, uh, you can adjust your strategy. And uh, what do you get for that, right? Um, ultimately, trend following as a risk management tool is a bit like getting insurance. So if you were to look from December 1988 to April 5th, which is what this graph shows, the S&P returned 10.35% a year, um, going in and out of the market about one time a year from trend following, you, you earned 9.2% a year. So 1% less. But what you can see about the graph is you're kind of either climbing or going sideways, right? So again, even if you had a 1% less return, but you had two investors, you know, you and Mark and our uncle Mark in our example before, even if Mark was earning 9% and you were earning 10, but you had negative 50% drawdowns and his worst drawdown using trend following was 10 to 20%, um, at the end of the graph, he's still gonna end up much higher than you uh, because he's not making withdrawals uh, when his portfolio was crushed in 01, 08, and again in uh, 2020. Um, in fact, maybe I'll update Mark's fair graph um, for just trend following. As a reminder, the one we showed earlier was trend following and valuation. We like the combination because it's sort of like putting um, John Henry and Warren Buffett together, right? Guys like John Henry, uh, certain macro hedge fund managers, they're all about technicals and trends and momentum. Uh, guys like Warren Buffett, they're all about valuation. Uh, same with Seth Klarman. Uh, they both have something useful, especially on risk management. Um, we found that putting to, them together is the most effective. Um, but yeah, to your answer your question specifically, trend following is not as much trading as you would think. Uh -huh. And it does a pretty great job for investors uh, who want to avoid uh, nasty drawdowns of um, avoiding that risk and Historically, there's been a little bit of a cost to it, like you can see here, um, a slightly reduced return. But also keep in mind, as you look at the graph, if you go through COVID from 1988, they actually have the same return, right? It's been the last couple of years as the markets really recovered to create that little bit of a separation. But what we found and a lot of the literature has shown is it 
uh, trend following is, is kind of a costless way to get insurance. Historically, you haven't given up much on the upside and you've really protected your downside. Um, yeah, but it's lower trading that you would think as, as long as you set the moving averages, especially the long one, as not too short, right? Oh. Um, yeah, so yeah, hopefully, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does, definitely. <laughs> Thank you. All right, good. Um, Griff, uh, keep the great questions coming. We're, we're thrilled you could join us today. Hog Sameach and good Friday to our Jewish and Catholic listeners and uh, happy weekend, everybody. Happy weekend. Uh, remember, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests. Nothing discussed today should be considered investment advice. And please consult your own financial advisor and tax advisor whenever considering any investment. If you have questions and you're one of our clients, please feel free to email us with the term podcast in the subject line. For more information about this podcast, the host, and the firm, please visit us at www.mk-am.com or email us at info at mk-am.com. Thank you for joining us and look for our next podcast release in the near future. Mm-hmm.